Well, let's go together to Matthew chapter 17. This is one of those passages of Scripture that I come to with care. And I want to, I don't want to make more of the Scriptures than is there, but I don't want to come short either. And I, I, my, my purpose this morning is to attempt to lead our minds to the glory of God in Jesus. And I think that is, there are a lot of things that are set forth here in these verses, but I think that is fundamentally, at least according to what Peter says in Second Peter chapter 1, it's helpful when we have an interpretation uh, somewhere else in Scripture, but we have Peter's word on it, and uh, we also have John's word on it as well. So I hope that God will help you as he helps me uh, this morning to be able to ascend uh, from maybe where we are to where he wants us to be and that which we see by the eye of faith and that we will be affected in a very real way, in a deep way, by what he intends to show us from the scriptures, that the scales will be taken off, that the word is the word. And the spirit of God is speaking when his word is is read. We don't always hear. And so we need help. And so I trust that that will be the case. And I don't say that just for you. I say it for me as well. Let's begin our reading in chapter 16 and verse 27. We'll go down through verse 9. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels. And then he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking. Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly, or behold, a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until 
the Son of Man is risen from the dead. So six days after assuring His disciples of His future coming in the glory of His Father with His angels, and after saying that some standing there with Him would be blessed by a preview of the Son of Man coming in His kingdom, Jesus takes three of His disciples to a high mountain by themselves. We don't know what mountain it was. It's not identified. It may be the one that was closest to Caesarea Philippi, which is where, where the previous event, events took place. And that was the, probably the highest peak in that region, Mount Hermon. Mount Tabor is another one that is traditionally known as the Mount of Transfiguration, but I'm not convinced that's the mountain. There are a couple of other guesses that people have made. The fact is we don't know. But we do know it was a holy mountain. We know it was a holy mountain because that's what Peter says. It was a holy mountain. And you know what made it holy? The presence of God was there. That's the only thing that made it holy. You know what makes this place holy here this morning? The presence of God. If the presence of Christ is not here, if the presence of God is not here, this is not a holy place. Luke tells us that Jesus went to the mountain to pray. It's interesting. Matthew doesn't say that. He went to the mountain to pray, and it was as he was praying that the events that are recorded here by Matthew occurred. So Matthew focuses upon what happened, not the, so much the context in which it happened, but it was in the context of prayer, which a whole other message could be preached on that, and I have preached on that before when I went through Luke, the impact of prayer, things that happen in prayer. But that's not the focus of Matthew. That won't be our focus today. These same three disciples will go with Jesus into dark Gethsemane in a few months. A prayer time very different than this one. You see, some very dark days lay before these disciples as Jesus will be taken from them, suffer and die before his resurrection and ascended glory, which is what he was speaking of in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 16. This mountaintop experience, as I've come to think of it, provided them a revelation of Jesus that they needed in preparation for what was coming. Just a side note here. You and I, too, have mountaintop experiences in our Christian life, but that's not the norm. The mountaintop experiences, I would suggest, are preparations for coming down off the mountain and living life in its hard and difficult places, which is exactly what happened. And we'll see that. Maybe emphasize that a little bit in another message. But they needed this because of what they were facing. This transfiguration experience was ultimately for the immediate benefit of the disciples. Jesus knew who he was. But he also knew what he was facing. And, he, and, and we'll, you'll see why I'm saying this in a little bit. He was not only... God, he was man and fully, truly man. And so he he experienced life as a as a man with infirmities. And so there's no doubt that this mountaintop experience was to some degree for him. But I think primarily, especially as Matthew emphasizes it, it was for these disciples 
at least until after the resurrection. Because in verse 9, he said to these three, keep it to yourself, indicating maybe they weren't even to tell the other disciples, keep it to yourself, at least keep it from anyone else until after, he says, until after the Son of Man is risen from the dead. In fact, the emphasis is there as, as we see the, the wording of the text. In verse 1, he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And in verse 2, he was transfigured before them. And then in verse 3, it was to them that Moses and Elijah appeared. And then in verse 7, he touched them. So you can see the emphasis is upon the experience of these three disciples. But this experience is recorded for the benefit of, for the benefit of us all. We are given insight here. We are taking, taken into a, to a, in, in a sense, behind closed doors. And that happens often in Scripture, where we're given a sight of something that we wouldn't have if it had not been recorded for us. And here we have one such incident so that we might see and we might hear what they saw and heard, which is the glory of God in Jesus The Son of Man, who was of ordinary appearance to the natural eye, right? Jesus didn't walk around on the earth with a glow. Although, Mr. Spurgeon, if you read his commentary, he implies that he thinks that maybe Jesus glowed at times other than this. And people saw it. Well, that's speculation. We don't know that. You remember what Isaiah said, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form or comeliness. There's no stately form. There is no splendor. There is no evident glory just looking at him. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should Desire him. That's one of the ways you're going to know that the Messiah has come is because this is what he's going to look like. So the prophet Isaiah says. That these three disciples were selected to be witnesses of this unique revelation of Jesus before he passed through his deepest humiliation of suffering and the cross before his return to the glory he had with his father before the world was Jesus Christ is the revelation of the Father's glory. He is the one to whom all of redemptive history from Genesis to Revelation points. And I want us to see that today. Peter, Peter came to see that. Peter later wrote that he or they were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Second Peter one, verse 16 which he says confirmed that his message of the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ was not a myth. He says that this transfiguration that he was a witness to was about the honor and glory given to the Son from his Father. Second Peter 1, verse 17. That's what this is about. And then John 
who would later witness visions that equaled and even probably surpassed this experience. In fact, in Revelation chapter 1, there is some similar language that is recorded of that which John saw of Jesus. A, a white, a whiteness, a brightness that he saw after his ascension as he communicated with John. And then John wrote in John chapter 1 and verse 14 that we beheld his glory. Now, I'm inclined to believe that statement goes beyond just the physical manifestation. It doesn't eliminate the physical manifestation. This was a physical manifestation of glory. But it was the glory as of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth, as John goes on to write. And he said that of the one who was the word made flesh and dwelt among us. And what about James? These are the three witnesses that went up on the mountain with Jesus. Peter, James, and John. James didn't, that we know of, didn't write anything. In fact, James was the first recorded martyr of the apostles in Acts chapter 12. But what that tells me about James is that what he saw, he really saw. He saw the glory of God in Jesus to the degree that he was willing to die for what he saw. In Jesus. Really echoing what Jesus said would be true of his disciples. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. James did that. Even to his own death for following Christ. This mountaintop experience recorded by Matthew, Mark and Luke is really pivotal. In Scripture, it's pivotal in shaping the thoughts of Christ's disciples then and now as new covenant believers, seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And that's paramount. That's what I want us to see. The glory of God in Jesus, first of all, is literally seen in this transfiguration. Verse 2, and He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun and His clothes became as white as the light. And Mark, I believe it is, well, both Mark and Luke speak of this, but I think Mark says at this point that they were afraid of what they were seeing. It struck them and it, it impacted them in a fearful sort of way. It was strange what they were seeing. This was a spectacular physical manifestation in the darkness of that night on the mountain. You say, well, how do you know it was dark? Well, first of all, they were sleepy, Luke tells us, and they sort of drifted off to sleep. So it probably was into the night. And secondly, it was the next morning that they came down off the mountain, the Scripture says. So it was a night. But Matthew says he was transfigured before them. This word transfigured is not referring to a change of essence or nature. While it was a visible change that was at least manifested, it was seen, it was literally seen. What they saw that night emanated from an essential inward source. This is important. You notice, Matthew says, his face shone like the moon. 
Some of you are looking back down at your Bible. Is that what it said? No, his face didn't shine like the moon. It shone like the sun. He was not reflecting. But the very, he was the very source of this bright countenance. And his clothes became as white as the light. A glowing manifestation from within. I, I was thinking about, you know, you've seen perhaps, well, there's different images that come to my mind. But, you know, sometimes, and I'm going camping, Lord willing, next week, and we're going to have a light in our tent. And you know what people are going to see that are looking at our tent at night? They're going to see light coming. They're going to see light emanating. But it's coming from inside. It's not the clothing. It's not the tent. It's not the clothing. It's, it's what was coming out from within him. He is light. I think it's Psalm 104 says he wraps the light around him. This is the fulfillment. Jesus is the brightness of the Father's glory, isn't he? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the brightness of his glory. He is God. He's not a reflection of God. He's God. Well, Moses' face shone too, didn't it? And you can read about that in Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 through 35. I won't go back there to read it, but it, it talks about his face shining. In fact, a veil was placed over his face. We're going to reference that here in a little bit. But Moses' face was a reflective glow. It wasn't Moses' essential glory shining through. It was kind of like God is the health of his countenance. And that's true for you and me, too, as well. When our faces glow, not in the same physical fashion, but there is a physical glow that should emanate really from the people of God. If God is the health of your countenance. This was something that Jesus wasn't borrowing or reflecting. It was coming from within him. Here in the transfer in the transfiguration, there the transcendent glory of the infinite God, a transcendent glory is something that's far beyond us that we can't fully comprehend. We can't fully enter into. And in the transfiguration, this transcendent glory of the infinite God, which, by the way, was robed in flesh. That lyric in the hymn that we sing, robed in flesh, the Godhead, see. What is that saying? Yes, it's saying that in in this Jesus, you're seeing deity. But it's robed in flesh so that the fullness of that deity does not shine through. It is to a degree that it shines through. Why do I say that? Well, first Timothy, chapter six and verse 16, the Apostle Paul says he dwells in unapproachable light. And yet these were able to approach him. And by the way, we are able to approach unapproachable light because of Jesus But this glimpse that is given here on this mountain on this night lit up the night and the disciples were able to look upon the divine essence of God in part, which Jesus never laid aside. 
When Jesus came to this earth, he didn't lay aside his divine essence. But he laid aside the manifestation, the full manifestation of it. I'm not saying that deity was not manifested. I'm saying the fullness of that manifestation. Yes, it was in Jesus. The fullness of God dwelt in Jesus, in his body. But the infinite degree of glory was veiled. In this physical transfiguration, the glory of God in Jesus was manifested as never before. Indicating to these men and to us as well as we read this, if you're looking at Jesus, you are looking at the fullest emanation of the glory of God that you will ever see. In Jesus. Secondly, The glory of God in Jesus is confirmed by Moses and Elijah. Verses 3 and 4. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. Two witnesses are sent from heaven. As Jesus communes in prayer with his father. And you can let your mind wander at this point. What this must have been like, not only on earth, but in the regions that we can't see. As he communed with his father. And, 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 and there's Moses and, and, and Elijah that are then, that, that appear, they show up on the mountain. And remember, Moses and Elijah, or the very significant figures, aren't they, in Old Testament history, in the minds of the Jews, you remember Moses' burial was a mystery at the end of Deuteronomy 34. No one knows where, where his grave was or is. And that, that was by God's design. God buried him, it says. And then what about Elijah? Well, he never experienced death, did he? He was translated. But here, they both appear in recognizable form. By human years, Moses has been gone probably 1,500 years, and Elijah's been gone maybe 900, between 850 and 900 years. They've been gone. Where, where have they been? Abraham's bosom? Paradise? Where's that? And what is that? And, and what have they been doing? And were they embodied? And, they, and how many other questions do you have? Listen, I've got questions too. And I don't have all the answers. I don't need all the answers. But what I do know is that they appeared here on this mountain. And the disciples, and they, re, they appeared in recognizable form. Like, how, how, did, how did the disciples know? That this was Moses and Elijah. Well, I think they knew because they heard they heard them talking. That's how I think they knew. And some may have another answer that satisfies you more than that, but that satisfies me. They heard it. He says, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him, but they were able to hear. They The disciples heard them talking with Jesus. What were they talking about? Now, there's a whole message that, in fact, I heard somebody preach one recently, uh, really around this whole theme of the conversation between these two men and Jesus. It was quite an 
helpful and encouraging message. But we know what they were talking about because Luke tells us in Luke chapter 9 and verse 21, it says that he that they were talking to him about his decease. That was about to come in Jerusalem. His decease. That word decease is the translation of a word. Exodus. That's interesting. I suppose we could build a whole lot of thoughts out of that. But really, it's talking about his exit. And so here, Moses and Elijah were sent to engage with Jesus on this mountain. The Father sent them to engage with Him about His decease, about what was coming, about what He was facing. You see, in the Jewish mind, and I think this is one of the significances of it being Moses and Elijah, in the Jewish mind, these men represented the law and the prophets. And what was the message of the law and the prophets? Luke 24, verse 44. Then he said to them, Jesus said to them, these are the words which I spake to you while I was still with you. And all things must be that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and and to rise from the dead the third day. And that's precisely what these men were talking to Jesus about, about, about what was coming in Jerusalem. His suffering and his death and also his resurrection. Moses and Elijah understood who Jesus was. They understood why he was sent from the Father. They knew what was going on. They weren't guessing. They came to talk to him about that which they knew about his decease, his purpose for coming. And you know what? They knew that he had to fulfill his mission in order to return to his Father's glory. I think that probably Moses and Elijah, with all the angelic saints and the angels, it was there was a bit of perhaps even frustration in their minds that there was this apparent separation. The, the sun has come to earth. And I know we're getting into some deep waters there. And I don't maybe I shouldn't even try to go there so that your minds don't get pulled off of what we're talking about here. But the, the point is, there was this there was this idea that Jesus had to follow through. He had to go through. He had to go into those sorrows, into the depths of his humiliation. He had to do that in order to get to the other side, the joy that was set before him, you see. And Moses and Elijah understood this. And so here they are speaking with him because it was only as he did that, that he would be that the father would be satisfied, that God would be satisfied in the resurrection of the Son and ultimately the Son going back to be with His Father to share the glory which He had with Him before the world was. John 17, verse 5. And so Moses and Elijah, were they helpful? Well, you remember Moses and Elijah both experienced rejection. But they both experienced deep sorrows. So they were able to relate To what Jesus was facing. And they were no doubt able to be a source of encouragement to to him. 
Moses knew that Jesus was the prophet that he had prophesied would come. Do you remember the words of Moses and uh, the words that the Lord gave to Moses in Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15? The Lord, your God, will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear twice. That is recorded in the book of Acts as different Stephen and um, I think it was Paul speaking or preaching to the Jews reminded them. This is Jesus. This is the Messiah. And Moses, no doubt, spoke those words to Jesus, confirming, I know you are that prophet. Elijah also knew Jesus was the one that Malachi said that he would he would precede Jesus. He would precede the Messiah. Malachi chapter four. And we're going to say more about that in verses 10 through 13. Both of these men also had mountaintop experiences. If you, if you just compare the lives of Moses and Elijah, you see a lot of parallel between their lives and what Jesus experienced. Moses on Mount Sinai. Elijah on Mount Horeb. By the way, Mount Sinai and Mount Horeb are probably the same mountain. They are both called the mountain of God in the Old Testament Scriptures. God's voice gave the law to Moses God's voice, along with other experiences, spoke encouragement to Elijah on Horeb following his encounter with Jezebel. And so now on this holy mountain, as Peter called it, these two men confirm that this is the Christ of God. This is the Redeemer of Israel. But Peter, Peter didn't quite get it, did he? He was a slow one. Oh, eventually he did. Because God's children do learn. They grow, don't they? And so did Peter. But his response in verse 4 to what he saw and heard reveals his slowness to understand the proper place of Moses and Elijah in relation to Jesus and God's plan of redemption. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, and this was a quick response. In fact, I think it's Luke that says he didn't know what he was saying. There's the indication he was speaking out of fear. He had to say something. By the way, if you feel like you've got to say something, best, the best thing probably do, to do is not to say anything. Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three Tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Some say this was this event happened near the Feast of Tabernacles. And Peter was actually thinking, well, if we go to Jerusalem, you're going to die. I don't want you to die. So let's build. Let's just have the glory right here on the mountain. Let's, let's establish this glory right now. I don't know if that's true. We know that Peter was thinking that right earlier because He said, Lord, no, this isn't going to happen to you. You're not going to suffer and die. Three tabernacles. Lean-tos. Shelters that were used at the Feast of Tabernacles. Maybe that's what was going on. We don't really know. But oh, how wrong Peter was. As glorious as God was revealed under Moses and the administration of the law and prophets, that glory paled in significance to the glory of God in Jesus and the new covenant established in Him. 
I must turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where we find this reference. The reference to the comparison of, of Moses and, and Christ, really, in 2 Corinthians, in the law, or the old covenant and the new covenant. In 2 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 7, But if the ministry of death, written and engraved on stones, was glorious, Listen, the old covenant, the mosaic economy, the law given through Moses, there was a great deal of glory associated with it. But do you understand that if that's the only glory there ever was that came into this world, we would all be condemned? And there would still be a glory. God would still be glorified in a certain sense. But God has intentions of greater glory than that. Which is why the, the way the New Testament, and I think the Old Testament points to it, the New Testament bears this out. There's this richness, this glory in the mercy of God in the New Covenant that could not have been known had there only been an Old Covenant. But if the ministry of death written and graven on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily on the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passed away. And I remind you, as we keep reading, that Moses had to put a veil over his face. Jesus did not put a veil over his face. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? For if the ministry of condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. I'm even thinking of Romans chapter 9, verses, was it 22, 23, 24? There was a manifestation of the power of God, but all of that was in the context of the richness of the glory of God made known upon the vessels of mercy. For if what is passing away was glorious... What remains is much more glorious. Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses. I mean, a Jew is talking here. Jews don't talk like that, unlike Moses. But here's a, a redeemed Jew who, by the way, if Moses had been speaking himself, he would have said the same thing. Unlike me. How do we know this? I'm jumping ahead here, but this is what you do in preaching. When all was said and done, and they lifted up their eyes, where was Moses? Where was Elijah? Oh, God. And Moses, if Moses had returned, it would only have to have been to say, Hey, guys, get the message here. Jesus is the glory of God. He's the one you need to be listening to. He's the one you need to be looking at, not me. Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. And yet Jesus says, come unto me, look unto me. 
That's even in Isaiah. Look unto me, all the ends of the earth. Look. Moses veiled his face so you couldn't look. But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. Listen, Moses and Elijah knew Jesus. They knew Jesus. They knew that He alone could be the mediator between sinners and God. Every other mediator failed. Moses was kind of a mediator. The law was given to the hands of angels through a mediator. Moses was a kind of mediator. And yet he failed. Everyone who was raised up to be a sort of go-between, even the priests of the Old Testament, they failed. Everyone failed until Jesus came. Because you see, there is only one mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus. He's the very glory of God united with humanity. And that's what we are seeing here on the Mount of Transfiguration. And so as Moses and Elijah are turning to depart, according to Luke, that was the sequence, they're turning to leave. And Peter is making his fearful, anxious recommendation. It was when that was happening. Verse 5 says, While he was still speaking, Peter, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And so the glory of God, not only confirmed by Moses, And Elijah, the glory of God in Jesus is announced by none other than the Father Himself. The Father will not stand for confusion on this matter relating to His Son. The Father comes in His well-known glory in a cloud of 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 a distinguished nature. He did that on Mount Sinai, didn't He? Exodus 24:15 and Moses went up into the mount and a cloud covered the mount. Look that was called the glory of God descending. The tabernacle Exodus 40 and verse 34, then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Solomon's temple the very same words are used. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Brothers and sisters, what is going on here? Here the bright cloud envelops the true tabernacle of God and temple. And as we have already seen, that glory emanating. He is filled with that glory. The Word made flesh dwelling among us. Tabernacling among us. And with his thunderous voice, the Father makes two things very clear. Do you see it? First, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Not Moses, not Elijah. Not anyone else. 
It is as if the Father is saying, my glory is indissolubly. Ooh, that's a tough one to say. I should have practiced it. Indissolubly. You know what that means? You can't separate. He's united as one with His Son. That glory. He says, this is 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 emphasized. This is being. This is my beloved Son. Eternally so. No beginning. No end. This is my beloved Son. He is the one of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 42 and verse 1. Behold, Yahweh says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 3. Listen, O coastlands. That's us. Listen to me and take heed, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb. From the matrix of my mother, he has made mention of my name. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. His name shall be called Jesus Emmanuel. And he has made my mouth like a sharp sword. Who is this? Revelation speaks of that sword coming out of the mouth of the Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end. The risen, ascended Christ. The glorious one. In the shadow of His hand, He has hidden me and made me a polished shaft. In His quiver, He has hidden me and He has sent forth to accomplish the redemption of Israel. Verse 3 of Isaiah 49, He said to me, You are my servant, O Israel. Speaking to this son, this servant, You are my servant, O Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Father, glorify your name. And the Father says, I have glorified it, and I will yet glorify it again. Isn't that what He said? In His Son. In His Son. And so the voice says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And then the second thing, Hear Him. So simple. Hear Him. There is no other word. There is nothing else to to hear. There is no one else to listen to. Hear Him. He is the final word. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2. In the past, God spoke in many ways, through many different prophets, servants, different ways. But here, in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, who is the brightness of His glory, the express image of His person. Hear Him. He's the mediator of a better covenant, the new and everlasting covenant. 
Jehovah is not saying ignore everything that was ever said or written by Moses and Elijah or the prophets. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying that all that Moses and Elijah or the law and the prophets said, find their fulfillment in his beloved son. His is the final word. He is the final word. Listen to him. He has much more from this point, at least in the life of Christ And in relationship to these apostles, he has much more that he's going to say before his death. We have that. We have we're going to see it in Matthew. We see it in the Gospel of John. He had a lot of things to say. And his father is saying, hear him. He's the final word. Listen to him. And he's going to say even more after his resurrection in those 40 days. He's going to he's going to say a lot of things to them about the kingdom. You remember. Hear him. His is the final word. His is the final revelation. By the way, we're not looking for any new revelation today. We have it all. It's been given to us. Well, let me let me let me correct that. We are we are looking for one new revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ as he comes again, which was talked about in chapter 16 that we are. And this is the preview of that. In this transfiguration. What was the response of these Disciples, to what they were hearing, to what they were experiencing. Verse 6, when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. Hmm. Interesting. We run across that several times in Scripture, don't we? When God comes forth in particular ways, there is the response of unafraid kind of fear, it seems like, as as individuals and even a nation, the nation of Israel, overwhelmed by the ominous manifestation and voice of God. There's, you can read about it with Isaiah and Daniel and, and even John later on. But beloved, this is not where our God wants us to end our thoughts. Because verse 7 says that Jesus came and touched them. And said, Arise, and do not be afraid. The response of Jesus to their afraid fear. There is a right kind of fear. But this is not the right kind of fear really for the people of God. An afraid fear. Jesus comes to His disciples and reminds them, and He reminds us as we read this, of His great love for His own. Oh, don't misunderstand. Apart from Jesus, the only mediator between God and man, God is unapproachable. You ought to be afraid. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But, but, listen to me. Hear the but. But God, rich in mercy, With His great love wherewith He loved us. But God in Christ, He takes away that fear. I was speaking to someone yesterday who was telling me about the fear that they were raised up under. Parents, I encourage you, don't leave your children in that place of fear. Lead them to who Jesus is. Lead them to this Jesus who's revealing Himself. Oh, the tenderness of God's glory. 
revealed in Jesus. What did he do? He touched them. He touched them. He saw their reaction. He heard Peter's words. What do you mean comparing? You think I'm on the same level as Moses and Elijah? How long have you been with me, Peter? He didn't say any of that. By the way, this may not even relate here, but it relates to what Stuart was saying in the last hour. Vengeance is mine. I'll repay, saith the Lord. Actually, Jesus said he left vengeance with God, his father. In 1 Peter chapter 2, I believe it is. He left that with his father. He came not to condemn, but to save. And so, with his compassionate hand upon these frightened disciples, he says, arise. Do not be afraid. The thundering voice said, hear him. And what are the first words they heard? I love this. And thank you to our brother Robert Hawker. And you can read it in the bulletin. I've got an excerpt from him. But thankful to him, you're hearing what I'm saying right now. The first words out of Jesus' mouth. He said, hear him. What was the first words these frightened disciples heard? Do not be afraid. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that love? Isn't that grace? Isn't that mercy? Do not be afraid. As if to say, perhaps, and maybe I'm saying more than I should here, though eventually Jesus will say these things to them, you are loved with the same love wherewith my Father loves me. Did you hear what my Father just said? My father just said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Disciples, my chosen ones, my people, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you hear those words? What the father says of his own son, he says of you. Beloved. Be loved and well pleased. And there is a kind, as we bring this to a close, there is a kind of transfiguration that happens. How can you hear those words? And how can you have the touch of Jesus? And how can you hear him really say to your soul, be not afraid and not be transformed? And so I say there is a kind of transfiguration, not exactly like Jesus is experiencing here, that happens with every soul that is born of the Spirit and touched by Jesus and comes to Him in faith. And this is where 2 Corinthians, I'll finish reading 2 Corinthians chapter 3, is so good. Verses well, 15 through 18, but even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. I was just reading some things online from, 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 some, from, from some Jews who were saying, we're so looking forward to our Messiah coming who will deliver us and bring peace. 
They have a veil, don't they? A veil over it. They still do. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror. So as you're looking into the face of Jesus, when you're looking into that glory that is made known to you by the Spirit, there is a reflection, there's something that's happening to you. You are being transformed. That's the very same word that's translated transfigured. You're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. And this is the same. This is the ongoing result of what happened when you first believed in Second Corinthians, chapter four and verse six, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You will not be changed from the inside out by way of the law or the prophets. The law and true prophets point you to who? Jesus Christ. The same Spirit that filled Jesus glorifies Him in you and me who have received Him by faith. Galatians chapter 3 Verse 14, I think it is, talks about receiving the promise of the Spirit from the Father by faith, through faith. And it is that Spirit that works in us to transform us by the renewing of our minds. Right? Romans 12 and verse 2. As these things are made alive in us. Christ is made real to us and we truly see Him. I don't know a better verse to conclude with than verse 8. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Jesus only. What a fitting reminder it is to us that there is no... If we are... Focusing upon lifting up anything or anyone else to a place of preeminence above Jesus Christ. We're missing the mark and we are not seeing that which is the very source of our transformation. And that is in his face, because it is in his face that we see the light of the glory of the knowledge of God, right? In the face of Jesus Christ. I thank God that we are accepted in Him. May the glory shine in your hearts and minds as the Spirit of God brings you to see Jesus Christ exalted, having been crucified, having been buried, having been risen again, Reigning today, 
and giving to us His Spirit, the seal of our redemption that is found in Him. Thank You, Father, for this Word. Thank You for...